Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this week by Squarespace and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hey, Jason. Hey, Stephen. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Very good. Still f- feet firmly planted on planet Earth for now. Mm. Is this an announcement of some sort? Are you are you the secret SpaceX tourist? Hey, I, actually, life would be more interesting if we all lived our lives like Elon Musk, don't you think? I, it's true. I do often think about digging holes under the ground. And... So what I'm saying is that I'm announcing that I'm flying to Saturn. Hmm. Well, in four years. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. It. I may no be problem. I may be overextending a little bit, but it's more no, exciting this way, no, isn't it? That's fine. Totally. It's very exciting. I'm excited. Everybody's uh, going to be I... talking about it. Jason's flying yeah. to Saturn. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. I'll put $1,000 down on that car. Wait. Okay. What company mm. are we talking about? Huh? It's all very confusing. I don't know. We should probably do a pre-flight checklist. SpaceX is at the top of that list. Look at this. Oh, look at that. Look at this uh, synergy we're having. In mid-December, SpaceX will fly CRS-13, which is a resupply mission to the International Space Station. Uh, and that's that's not necessarily news, but what is news is it will be the first flight, if all things go going to plan, from the newly rebuilt and unexploded Launch Complex 40. That's nice. Yeah. That's nice. That, is is this the one that it, they blew up? It is. It is the one they blew up. Uh, so they, uh, this was on September 1st, 2016. Uh, the the MO6 satellite and its Falcon 9 were destroyed they were fueling up the rocket, and you remember this giant fireball, and then basically the the whole payload just kind of fell off the top of the rocket, and it was <sighs> it was quite sad. So uh, sad. Uh, if you remember, there are images of the strong back tower basically like completely twisted and destroyed. So they've been uh, rebuilding it. This, you break it, you, you, you know, you break it, you buy it. Yeah, well, <laughs> they do lease it. So, I mean, kind of. They leased it starting in 2007. I think the first flight was uh, in 2010. They have a 20-year lease. So yeah, it's in their best interest to to rebuild it. And what this gives them is obviously you have redundancy now, so you can you can launch them two different places um, at Kennedy, but you also have they also have the ability to launch Falcon Heavy. The company had said several times actually that they would not launch Falcon Heavy until both of its Florida pads were operational. It's a new rocket, it's experimental. If something goes wrong and you destroy your only launch pad in Florida, that's really bad for your customer and your operations. But now this is uh, back in action, and they have said that it is planned, Falcon Heavy is planned for late December. Uh, Apparently all three uh, boosters are there, ready to go. They just got to strap them together, which I assume is just basically like big things of Velcro. How hard could it be? I think bungee uh, cords. Don't forget the bungee cords. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Velcro may, you know, you know, it's not super secure. As you found out with some audio equipment we were talking about earlier, your mm-hmm. your, your office is falling apart. Well, no, I mean it's Velcro. The Velcro yeah. part actually was the the solid part. It was the uh, it was the adhesive oh, on the back no. of the Velcro that failed. Oh, yeah. So the Velcro was good. Okay. Well, no, then, Velcro then they're, they're is they're not set. the problem. Yeah. Then they're set. Um, SpaceX had a launch on October thirtieth, so last week. That meant sixteen launches for the company in twenty seventeen. That ties the all-time record that United Launch Alliance set back in 2009 of 16 launches. So assuming they just have one more successful launch this year of the Falcon 9, then they will have the the, the highest number of launches for uh, a space company 
program yeah. entity people with rockets um, yeah so people, that, people with rockets people with rockets so that's um that's exciting to see you know uh, elon musk has been talking a lot about picking up the pace and they have this big customer backlog they want to get through uh, i think that puts it at uh let, let's say they do they do no more um, this year. They stay at sixteen. That's still a launch every like three to four weeks, you know, and and so that number will only get smaller. So they are they are on a regular uh, cycle now, and that's that's what he has been promising for a while. Clearly, this launch um, launch complex forty uh, accident last last year set them back, but it seems like they're back on track. Yeah, and of course they're launching from uh, from the West Coast as well. So they've got a, a couple of different launch sites yeah. for different kinds of orbits, and now they're going to have the, the, uh, the other pad back into place, which allows them to move 39A to be for Falcon Heavy in December. Yeah, things are uh, things are rolling for SpaceX, and of course they they also have the record for the most uh, first stage returns. They do. They they uh, they 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 beat their own record there, basically. <laughs> yeah. They just keep uh, keep uh, besting that it. Mm-hmm. I watched the October 30th launch. It was it was afternoon, like after school, and the kids wanted to see it. And uh, they always get really excited when the footage cuts out when it lands on the drone ship, right? Because it's just like a very traumatic thing, and usually they lose they lose uh, the satellite feed, and then it comes back, and all of a sudden it's like you know a blink of an eye, and it's standing there, like the bottom of it's still on fire. And uh, but the, the kids always get a kick out of that, and it always, I mean, after so many of them. Even for those of us who cover it, it's like yeah, SpaceX lands lands their boosters. Like that's what they do. But uh, it's fun to see my kids get really excited about it every time. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and talk about the Grace mission. This is Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. This is a uh, a NASA mission. It is a set of orbiters that have been in low Earth orbits for 15 years or so. Uh, it's actually a joint mission of NASA and the German Aerospace Center. This is really cool. I didn't know much about Grace. I'd come across it a couple times, but I wasn't super familiar with it. Uh, and basically, what the this pair of spacecraft are doing is they make detailed measurements about the Earth's uh, gravity field and anomalies in that, and how it may change over time. And the way they do it is that these two spacecraft keep a set distance between the two of them as they travel around the globe. And then they measure changes in that distance as they circle. And that will give them – it's not super unlike what, what LIGO is doing, like measuring gravity um, sort of by looking at the distance of things. But uh, I, I don't know. Had you come across this? Like I, just, like I said, I wasn't super familiar with, with Grace. I wasn't aware of this, but I mean you think of um, the idea of uh, gravity of a planet as being – constant right like yeah. 1g is the gravity of the earth right but the the reality is that would only be true if the mass was exactly consistent throughout and that's not true there are areas that are massier and areas that are less massy and that affects gravity now i hadn't really thought about it in terms of the the details in the in the earth the first time i ever came up with this idea was on the moon because the moon is a weird agglomeration of stuff and is densely packed in some places uh, and not in others, and so there's a much wider variance. Again, not so much that you'd mention, you know, you'd be bounding around on the moon and then suddenly land and be at a high gravity. <laughs> that doesn't happen. But uh, there are gravity anomalies on the moon because of the mass 
of the moon and the way it's distributed. But but uh, Grace has been doing it with the Earth, and and it's seen stuff, right? I mean, that's the amazing thing about this is it's not just like oh yeah, there are small variations, but like it's given them the ability to understand. Um, like uh, ice sheet melting into the ocean changes the balance of the mass of the earth and they're mm-hmm. actually able to measure that. Yeah, it's it's really it's really wild. There's that. There's uh, looking at global groundwater resources, looking at uh, underground water sources as well. So these big aquifers that are under the surface of the earth. And there's a lot of research saying that, that we are depleting those rather rapidly and they can track that over time. And the way, the way this works, like I said, there's a set distance of 137 miles or 220 kilometers, and they're measuring that within like the fraction of the diameter of a human hair. So very precise measurements. And they combine that with GPS tracking, uh, star tracking, uh, accelerometer information to, to kind of piece this together. So initially it launched in 2002. It's been a 15-year a, a mission. It was originally planned for five years, but got uh, expanded but the news is is that it is coming to an end. So Grace 2, uh, one of the two spacecraft, failed earlier this year, but its twin is continuing to fly until it runs out of fuel and then it will uh, basically have a, a, a re-entry period. But there is a new mission uh, called uh, Grace FO or Grace Follow-On, not, not podcast follow-up, follow-on. No. So there's a not different fo- kind, yeah. Different kind. And that's going to launch uh, as early as December. And so... We see a very, a very quick replacement of this mission, so so the work can continue. And like we talked a lot about outer solar system stuff, that there's there's going to be a big gap in in our robotic missions. But in low Earth orbit, that's easier to manage and much cheaper to manage. And so they're, they're going to launch these uh, as early as the end of the year. And kind of like what you said, really focusing on like ice cap loss and. Uh, water and ocean movement, trying to understand uh, those phenomenon, especially through the lens of climate change. It's a big part of this. Yeah. Um, and since we're talking about gravitational anomalies, uh, I want to mention, I mentioned the moon earlier. Uh, you can do a little dive if you want to. <clears throat> Our uh, astronomy word of the fortnight, I guess, mm. is MASCON, M-A-S-C-O-N, MASCON. Uh, which is short for mass concentration, and you look look up MASCON on Wikipedia or somewhere else, and you will be fascinated to discover that this is a serious problem if you're trying to orbit the moon because the gravity changes, and that makes it harder to orbit the moon because uh, they think the uh, basaltic uh, lavas that are in the mare of the moon are uh, concentrated mass that causes uh, causes there to be more gravity over those positions than elsewhere. It's wild stuff. So if you ever thought gravity was just uh, you know weird in the solar system or weird in the universe, but constant where you're standing, it's not true, especially if you're standing on the moon. Uh, I'm not, but it's good to know. I'd like to announce <laughs> that I'll be standing on the moon. Interesting. On let's say Christmas. Oh yeah, I mean okay, uh, okay. That's my that's my Elon Musk announcement. It's good to know. Number How two. are you going to pay for that? Oh, no, no details. I think um, we'll you know we'll make it work. I got work some back out. of the envelope calculations here, but uh, yeah. I don't have anything to announce on that front yet. Okay. Oh, oh no, it slipped to New Year's Eve already. Mm. Mm. Well, 
I gotta go. I got a blog post to go write. Okay. But first, I want to tell you about our first sponsor, Jason, and that is Squarespace. Enter offer code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you create a website for your next big idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and much more. Maybe you want to create an online store or a portfolio or you want to become a blogger or host a podcast. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install. No patches to worry about. You're not running around worried about Apache and all this stuff. No upgrades are needed. Squarespace just handles that for you. They have it covered so you don't have to worry about it. If you have a question, of course, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support. And they have all the tools you need. Like I said, you can quickly and easily grab a domain name and pair it with an award-winning template that's beautifully designed to show off your great ideas. We use Squarespace at Relay to publish our our blog and our online store. We've taken over 1,000 orders on our online store Squarespace, and it really couldn't be easier to manage. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you, dear listener, can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. We thank you, Squarespace, for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So we have uh, some more mission news. Did you see this news about Dawn? Yeah, uh, Dawn is, of course, orbiting around Ceres, which is not just an asteroid. It's also a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt, but it's it's like round-ish. And so, therefore, we could call it a, a dwarf planet. And it's been uh, orbiting around it for a while now. But they get to have a little more life. And once this is... We talked about this before, like when they sent uh, Cassini through the ring gap at Saturn, which is like, you're playing with the house's money after a while. You're like, sure, we'll fly through a dangerous area because if something happens to the spacecraft, we've already got a lot of data. And so they're going to tighten the orbit of Dawn around Ceres uh, to uh, sort of half the distance that it previously uh, was orbiting at. It's going to be about 120 miles from the surface of Ceres. And uh, they're also, by extending the... um, by extending the mission, they're going to be able to be around Ceres at Ceres' closest approach to the sun, which, again, it's in the asteroid belt. It's not that close. But they're, they want to see if the increased uh, insulation will lead to possibly some uh, melting of ice on the surface and if there's maybe even a little tenuous kind of atmosphere that forms. Uh, they can't, however, every budget um, budget application, every budget modification in the world uh, does not help you when your spacecraft runs out of energy, mm-hmm. which is what will happen in late 2018 to uh, to a dawn, where uh, it's just not going to have any any more power that it's able to uh, to run off of, and at that point it will be dead. And they and uh, just as they crashed Cassini into Saturn in order to keep things safe um, around Ceres, the right thing to do is to leave it in orbit around Ceres so that it doesn't crash into Ceres and mess up Ceres. So that's what they'll do. It'll just sort of stay in orbit around Ceres a little buddy for uh, ever or for a long time anyway. I'm glad that, that it's got an, another continuation. This I think is the second mission extension. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that they're going to, they're going to keep flying. They're basically going to do it until it runs out of fuel, I think at this point. So so yeah, that's uh, that is good stuff. 
Yeah, we'll get more close-up looks at the Minor Planet Asteroid series, which is very interesting. I think I think one of the most uh, like under-appreciated solar system objects. It's actually kind of kind of interesting. It's a bold well, it's claim. Big, you know, it, it, well, you know, when it was just like one of the asteroids, it was really super boring. But it's more interesting than that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll grant you that. It's there's some weird stuff going on there. So let's get back into Project Gemini. We started this a couple weeks ago, uh, NASA's second crewed space program. We spoke about the background of the project, and Jason, you taught us all about the Titan II rocket. Again, Mm -hmm. this is a missile. Let's put humans on top and see what happens. Great idea. Uh, So let's start this week by talking about the Gemini capsule itself. Uh, Sure. So uh, the spacecraft itself, built by McDonnell Aircraft, later McDonnell Douglas uh, owned by, I don't know, are they all part of Boeing now? I think maybe so. Uh, it was the prime contractor for Mercury as well. Um, the first capsule was done in 63, two years after the contract was awarded. That's pretty fast work. <laughs> That's pretty fast. That's not bad. Uh, it was 18 feet, five inches long and 10 feet wide. So definitely bigger than Mercury, but uh, still not huge. Again, they needed to fit two people in it instead of one, so that's nice. It was made up of two main parts. There was the crew capsule, of course, which they called the re-entry module because here's a uh, little clue. That's the part that comes back. Oh, yeah. Whoa. I and see why they named it that. <laughs> it's basically the Mercury capsule, but uh, updated a little On bit because it's a few yeah. years more recently uh, there. And uh, well, if it was if they used steroids, it would be banned from baseball, though. So I'm glad they didn't do that. Mm. And uh, and larger because it's got they got to stick two two people in there instead of one. It's got to be uh, twice as many humans inside. So you have the reentry module, and then you have a detachable adapter. Module, it's set behind the crew capsule or below it if it's sitting on top of the rockets. You can kind of picture it there. Uh, it was jettisoned before re-entry. Mm-hmm. See, uh, foreshadowing, the re-entry uh, module knows it's coming back. The adapter uh, yeah. module, not so much. Nope, it's uh, rest in peace adapter module. <laughs> to make the Gemini more robust, it used all solid-state electronics, and major systems were installed via modular components, so it could very quickly be tested and things could be replaced, basically making it uh, easier to live with. And uh, so again, like one of those design improvements that came after the, those early Mercury capsules. Yeah, it sounds like the Mercury capsules were kind of these artisanal, uh, hand-wired <laughs> capsules. And yeah. here, they really wanted to make it so that they could swap in components much more modularly, which you can understand the value of that, right? If something breaks and you have totally. to like start taking things apart and peeling everything back versus sort of taking one block and saying, well, pull this block out and put mm-hmm. in a new whatever. Um, so that's a, that's a smart move. It works with Lego. Why why wouldn't it work at a spacecraft? Sure. Makes sense. Story checks Mm -hmm. out. This was the first astronaut carrying spacecraft to to have a computer on board. How about that? It was the Gemini guidance computer. I'm sure it was super powerful. Sorry. Was that too sarcastic? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And it facilitated management and control of mission maneuvers. Mercury relied on ground commands for many of the automated moves. So they send up the message, and then the computer does what they tell it to do. It also had in-flight radar like a regular old airplane would have so that it could uh, detect its uh, distance from the ground. Gemini, this was out of all of this stuff preparing this episode talking about the capsule this is the craziest thing to me by far 
Gemini did not use a tower as an emergency escape system. So if you think back to Mercury, they had the like the Redstone rocket, and then you had the little Mercury capsule with the little astronaut stuffed inside like a sardine. And then above that, there was a tower with rockets on it that would fire and pull the capsule away from the rocket if things were going south with the rocket. Instead, so Gemini didn't have that. Instead, it used aircraft-style ejection seats. So if something happens on the pad or shortly after takeoff, after liftoff, the hatch blows and then the astronauts get shot off the side with an ejection seat. Thankfully, that never uh, had to be used. At higher altitudes, obviously the ejection seats would be a terrible idea, right? You don't want to be outside of your capsule uh, after a certain point. So the astronauts would return inside the spacecraft. They would use the motors in the adapter module to basically pull it away from the rocket. The system, I mean, this, it cut down on weight and complexity in the launch stack. Uh, Engineers contended that ejection seats would create enough of a separation between the astronauts and the vehicle. Uh, this was their reasoning, Jason. The Titan II would create a much smaller fireball if it exploded than the rockets used before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So you could just kind of ride it out above the giant fireball yeah, instead I'd, of being blown mm, away by it. Thankfully, like I said, this this did not have to be used. Uh, I don't think it was. Ne- I don't think it was ever tested with humans. You don't quote me on that. But at least it was never. It never was used in an actual accident. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the idea that they seat on a spring will outrun a fireball. It's like uh, <laughs> a launching rocket, exploding rocket. Yeah. No. Yeah. Anyway, never used. Well, I would like to talk a little bit more about that jettisoned adapter module. But before we do that, I should probably read the other sponsor, don't you think? Sounds good. All right. This episode is also brought to you by Eero. Uh, they, they tell you, like you get the Eero, and here's what you will not do. You will not be thinking about your Wi-Fi ever Again, this is Eero creates this dream Wi-Fi setup in your house. It will provide a fast, reliable connection throughout where you live, even in the backyard, the front yard. I've got some like Wi-Fi lights in the way in the front of the house that I couldn't mm-hmm. reach before, and now they are solidly connected to my network because of Eero. And the second-generation Super Slick uh, Aero Aero devices has just come out and i've got those now and they've got even more stuff in them they've got tri-band three different radio bands they've got Eero beacon which is a little thing you just plug in and it's like a nightlight and also extends your network without you having to worry about it there's that third the tri-band third five gigahertz radio so it's twice as fast as it was before lets you do more than ever whatever your wi-fi needs Eero has the power to blanket your entire home in fast reliable wi-fi it sits flat on any service just plug it into the wall with the occluded power adapter and you're ready to connect your Eero either via ethernet or wirelessly there's also a new thread radio which will let you connect to low power devices such as internet of things smart locks and doorbells and things like that and there's the new Eero beacon that i mentioned earlier plug it into a wall and expand coverage. It is like a wall wart kind of thing. You plug it in. It's also a nightlight if you want it to be. And that's it. You have covered, uh, you have expanded the coverage. The previous generation Eero sort of had three of those 
things that lay flat that you plug in. But the beacons, you can just add as many as you want and plug them into outlets. You don't need any special wiring other than the outlet and your Eero network expands. Uh, the Eero app also lets you manage your network with the palm of your hand. Just on your smartphone, you can create a guest network. Uh, if you need help, you can call their customer support. You can get a, a Wi-Fi expert on the phone in just 30 seconds. The new Eero system starts at $399. That includes one second-generation Eero and two Eero beacons. That's everything you need to get started covering your house in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. And listeners to Liftoff can get free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada. Just go to Eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com and use the promo code Liftoff. E-E-R-O.com and promo code Liftoff for free overnight shipping. Thank you to Eero for sponsoring Liftoff. All right. uh, Adapter module. It's not coming back. (laughs) <laughs> no it's uh behind the capsule or if you're launching it's the thing that's on, below it uh like you said um so uh equipment module 16 thrusters for control in orbit you got to get around in orbit um and also fuel cells so that you have uh the ability to generate power when you're in orbit so this is a this is a thing that you need to bring with you to orbit but it's not a thing that you have to bring back. And, of course, they wanted to minimize the amount of stuff they wanted to come back. They also knew, as we've talked about, this is a all a prelude for Apollo. They knew that they needed more modular spacecraft and the ability to kind of, like, take some of the modules off and put other modules on. And so this, this design is also a first attempt at that. Um, the adapter module also includes a uh, retro pack, which is what fires... Uh, when you're about to re-enter to slow you down, to slow your capsule down, uh, the retro pack is made out of four solid fuel rockets. Um, and speaking of emergencies that, that uh, like we were earlier, you could also use the solid fuel rockets in the retro pack to eject the capsule if uh, the vehicle failure happens like higher up where they can't just eject you with an ejection seat, they would actually fire the retros and blow it off the top, which also seems kind of bananas and super dangerous, but again, less dangerous than being on an out of control rocket that's exploding. Maybe <laughs> I would take can- kind of bananas and super dangerous over, over the uh, exploding rocket any day. Sure. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about reentry. Uh, we got to talk about these initial plans. So <laughs> let's do it. Uh, th- this is the second chapter in my Gemini capsule had some crazy ideas in it. Uh, mini series. The original intention was for Gemini to land on solid ground instead of at sea, which that's, that's not nuts. Soya does it today. Basically you uh, come down through the atmosphere and there are uh, rockets that fire the very last moment to, to sort of, gently put you down on the earth not that big of a deal but instead of doing that the gemini was going to glide with the nose of the capsule pointing forward so the astronauts could see out the hatch like they were side by side in an airplane and this would be achieved by deploying a large flexible airfoil called a regalo wing Uh, you can see pictures of that over on wikipedia Uh, and basically you would turn your spacecraft into a, a metal pointy airplane and then slowly, slowly come to a landing. Now, you may think, well, you can't attach them just to the nose of the aircraft because then you're going to fall over. Uh, so there are additional attachment points for balance near the heat shield. Uh, the cord between them was covered by a strip of metal, which ran in between the twin hatches. This plan was ultimately dropped 
super complicated. They didn't Again, want the paper the paper airplane with two guys in it. They didn't want that. <laughs> no, uh, no. So they they went with the more traditional parachutes and ocean landing. Uh, they they did tweak it a little bit. The capsule would touch down in the water at an angle. Uh, Mercury basically fell like sort of belly flopped into the ocean. The whole heat shield kind of hit it once. This was designed to drop more of an angle, so a side of the heat shield contact the water first, and you could get rid of the landing bag cushion and all the hardware needed for that that was used in Mercury. So they ended up improving what Mercury did instead of throwing it out the window and and flying in like a like a plane from space. Yeah, and to this day, no um, U.S. capsule has ever landed on solid ground. That the they were all uh, water landings. So yeah, as is as has been the Orion flight test. I've got a picture that I use as a wallpaper sometimes of it bobbing out in the ocean with the uh, the I guess the U.S. Navy coming to uh, fish it up. Well, Russia has more limited oceans in which their spaceships can land, and so they always had uh, in Baikonur in uh, in Kazakhstan, and then also in their new one in uh, Siberia. You know, they're landing on solid ground, and that's just how the Russians do it. But the Americans are like, we got uh, from sea to shining sea, baby. We got lots of water. Yeah. We're just going to drop things in the water, which, you know, there are some issues with it, but uh, it, it, it can be done. And uh, and that's that's uh, that's what we do, unless we've got a like space shuttle where we can uh, land it like a like, like an a, airplane, like yeah, like a brick with wings on it. Yeah, I say not like an airplane, like a glider screeching down from the heavens. Yeah, exactly, pretty much. So uh, let's talk about the. Uh, this is what I teased last time, by the way. This this next part, the two uncrewed missions that happened with Gemini. Um, Gemini one, April nineteen sixty four. The whole plan here is hey. Uh, will this work or will it break apart into little pieces? <laughs> the structural integrity of the spacecraft and the Titan II launch vehicle. Um, they also tested all of the tracking and communication systems. This was a great training for the ground support crew. This is not a dry run because they did like launch it, but a dry run for people in the Gemini capsule. And they went 63 orbits in five hours, burned up on entry as planned four days later because uh, there was nobody in it, so they kind of didn't care. And they drilled holes in the heat shield, which, <laughs> you know, I guess for reasons. Yeah. Make but, sure, uh, make like, sure oh, well. it burns up. That'll yeah. do it. Yeah, so that was that was it. But, you know, successful test. They learned a lot. They uh, they tried it all out. Yeah, and that's only 11 months after the last Mercury flight. So these thing, these two were really pretty close to each yeah, other. Yeah, they roll right right in together, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, between Gemini 1 and 2 is a pretty big gap. So we go from April April 1964 for your uncrewed mission, January 1965 for mine. Uh, Gemini 2 was several months behind schedule in both August and and September of 64, the Titan II had to be basically dismantled to protect it from two hurricanes that hit Florida. Uh, that's a that's a big setback there, and, and just part of the uh, part of the deal being uh, being in Florida. But a launch attempt was finally done on December 9th, 1964. The countdown reached zero, and the first stage engines were ignited and then shut down after just one second. Uh, there was a, a technical problem with a loss of hydraulic pressure, so they. They got that sorted out, and um, eventually... That's, that's tough, too. I remember, I think, a shuttle mission that had that same thing, where basically they ca- ca- counted down all the way down to zero and fired the engines, and then they ju- then, then they were like, shut down. And everybody's like, it's the moment of truth. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, here... Uh, 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 never mind. But, you know, that's why they have automated 
sensors that will yeah. shut things down before bad things happen. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, they finally got off the ground on January 19th, 1965. Unlike Gemini 1, this test was suborbital. It was designed to actually test the spacecraft's heat shield, unlike last time where they drilled holes in it to make sure the capsule burned up. Uh, this was uh, basically like an early Mercury flight. So they just uh, basically just shot up. After six minutes, the retro rocket slowed it down, uh, re-entered the atmosphere, touched down in the Atlantic Ocean uh, an entire 18 minutes later. So test one, looking at the launch vehicle. Test two, looking at the heat shield. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't a perfect test. The capsule had some issues. The fuel cells had failed, so that had to be disabled. The spacecraft's cooling system had overheated. Uh, but nevertheless, Gemini 3 would have crew on it. They deemed it successful enough to move forward. Uh, an interesting uh, side note, the spacecraft used for Gemini 2 was actually refurbished and launched on a second suborbital flight hmm. as a test uh, for the U.S. Air Force manned uh, orbital laboratory, which we're going to talk about. Uh, it's a pretty interesting little story. And now it's on display at the Kennedy Space Center where I've seen it. I've seen this capsule Ooh. and it is tiny and it's it's sort of mind blowing that two humans fit in there mm-hmm. and, and go to space. But uh, it, it was really it was really cool to be able to see it. And when I when I was reading about Gemini 2 and I realized that's when I seen it, went and dug up my pictures of it and uh, it was cool. So nice. Two test flights. That's it. You know, after the the Mercury test flights, you know, where they had they had some issues, the Titan two seemed to behave itself. Other than this this one issue in December sixty four, and I guess they deemed that two were enough and and just move forward with the end of I guess the end of the decade. You know, is is was coming their way pretty quickly at this point. So they they plowed ahead. Yeah, and so on to the crewed missions of Gemini in the next fortnight. That's right. Uh, in the meantime, you can find show notes for all the stuff we've talked about on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 59. You can get in touch with us there. Uh, you can send us an email. You can find us on Tumblr, uh, liftoffpodcast.space. Jason is on Twitter as jsnell, S-N-E-L-L. You can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.